Good morning. You know, when our young people uh, move away or go off to college, and then if they do move back, um, we like to acknowledge them, kind of welcome them back, especially true if they get married. And that's my joy today to get introduced to you, a couple, uh, Jacob and Maria Williams. Uh, you guys mind standing where you are? Uh, love you know Maria. She's the uh, daughter of Steve and Vicki Kofer. Uh, she left here, went off to Harding, and met this young man. And uh, Jacob is a great guy. He's from Dixon. Uh, know his family, a great family. They got married last year. Uh, he works at Farm Bureau. Uh, she is a kindergarten teacher at uh, Brown Elementary, and now they're part of our church family. So if you don't know them, please introduce yourself to them. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love for this to be your home. Just there's, let us know. Talk to an elder. There's a little box on that little attendance thing. You can note just whatever we can do to help you with that. Today, we want to begin a new series of messages on the last days of Jesus' life. And I'm calling it Jesus' Stressful Week. Two weeks ago, we talked about living like Jesus did. Not only accepting his teaching, his doctrine, not only accepting his call to holy living, his morals and ethics, but also his lifestyle. Prioritizing loving God and loving people. Understanding that our physical bodies need rest. Understanding that Jesus dealt with stress and the pressures that are much greater than ours. So I want to begin this series and continue that challenge of living like Jesus. Because his last days, that final week of his life, was especially packed full of significant pressure and stress. His life was threatened. His friends were fickle. His daily life was scrutinized. His, his private life was interrupted. And as we study the final week, what we're going to see is one pressure-filled moment after another. At one point, you recall, the strain was so intense, so severe, that his sweat was drops of blood as he cried out to the Father for help. Yet in all that stress, he was able to show us how to endure. He continued to communicate well with people. He completed his mission he trusted in his father. Look at 1 Peter, 2, verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. I want us to say that Jesus is the perfect example of how Christians should react to pressure. And we need that model, because we are living with pressure and stress, even today, constant stress. Newsweek magazine said since COVID use, since COVID, use of anti-anxiety medicines have increased 34%. Do you believe that? And it was already high. Dr. Glenn Steffen was quoted saying, it's hard to imagine we don't have a lot of our fellow Americans under incredible stress right now, either from getting sick or being afraid of being sick are losing their job. And that stress from COVID is added to already our ambition and our anxiety and our achievement and competition. We constantly hear our medical professionals warning us about, you know, the concerns with high blood pressure and heart attacks and suicide attempts and chemical addictions. We see strained relationships. All of that help us to see we need help coping with stress. 
So we're going to begin our study looking at the triumphal entry of Christ, a time when Jesus deliberately stepped into the spotlight. He'd come in the world to show the way to God, to have that right relationship, but he realized you cannot lead people if they don't see you. You cannot lead people if they don't hear you. So a potential leader must step into the spotlight. Now, some do that very willingly. The Apostle Paul did that. Some are more reluctant, like Moses. But any leader must be willing to put the focus of attention in order to influence people. Now, the spotlight immediately brings all kinds of pressure. When you are in a leadership position, you automatically get that kind of attention. People are analyzing your every move. There's expectations. There's responsibility. And there's accountability. And because we're aware of that, the temptation then is to avoid any kind of responsibility or leadership role. We'd rather be out of the limelight and live a life of ease. But a Christian must at times accept that responsible assignment to make a positive impact in our world. You know, in the early days of his ministry, Jesus flew under the radar, you might say. He kept a low profile. He would go village to village, teaching, doing good. But at the triumphal entry, he deliberately stepped center stage. All the focus was on him. And this example of Christ can be an incredible encouragement to us when we go through stress especially if we might be in a leadership role. So here's what I want to do in our study today. If you've got an outline, you can turn to the back. There's some notes there. But I want to notice a couple of things about this maybe very familiar story of the triumphal entry. But I want you to notice the stress that he's going through and how he responded. So first, let's see that Jesus was perceptive about the future, but he still accepted the assignment. And that takes courage. Now, Jesus was the Son of God. He knew why he came to save the earth. And as he went to Jerusalem, he knew he would be arrested and crucified. Bill mentioned that a few moments ago. Look what he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This wasn't a, I know it's going to be bad, I hope it goes well. He could not have been more plain and more detailed. He was going to die. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus knew in advance what was waiting for him in Jerusalem, yet he still went. And that took courage. William Barclay wrote about the courage of Jesus. Look on the screen. It was an act of glorious defiance and superlative courage for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. By this time, there was a price on Jesus' head. It would have been natural that if Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he should have slipped in unseen and hidden himself in some place in the back streets. But he entered in such a way to focus the limelight upon himself and occupy the center of the stage. It is breathtaking to think of a man with a price on his head deliberately riding into a city in such a way that every eye was fixed on him. 
It's impossible to exaggerate the sheer courage of Jesus. Look how Luke describes it. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, talking about going to heaven, being resurrected, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Some translations say he's resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He made his decision. The time had come. He knew what he had to do, and that took courage. Now, again, some people are reluctant to take a leadership role because they anticipate that kind of pressure. Maybe it's good that we can't see into the future sometimes. Because if we did and we could see some of that coming, we may not step into that role. Parents, as we age and we see our children become adults and then they consider maybe taking that job or moving to this position or or taking on this responsibility, we know the pressures that can come with that. And so we watch them go through that, anticipate being a leader. And maybe we're more reluctant to take that kind of role because we realize the glamour is short-lived, but the pressure will be intense. And you wonder if you're going to be able to make it. We know that the pressure, the responsibilities far outweigh any ego gratification. That's why many well-qualified people refuse to run for political office or accept leadership role in the community. Or even in the church. They don't want the pressure, the scrutiny, the stress. And as a result, often less qualified people step into that role. So before you refuse the position of authority because of the pressure, remember there's real blessings too. There's a satisfaction of making a positive contribution. There's a gratification of knowing you're doing the will of God. There's the affirmation the Holy Spirit is filling you and allowing you to use your talents to serve God and to make a difference. To know that you gave your best, that you did, you gave your all. I think this was what Paul was talking about, Philippians 3 verse 14. He said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the next chapter, the verse we know so well, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. All of that spoken of during pressure and stress of persecution. Not on a sunny day when things are going well. I press on. I step up. I can do this because God is with me. He's going to help me. Now, there are times you need to say no to added responsibilities. Maybe your plate is full and you, you physically, mentally, emotionally, you can't handle anymore. But sometimes you need to accept the opportunity to step into the spotlight and allow God to work in you and through you. And when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush and called him to lead his people out of Egypt, Moses did not want the assignment. You remember that story? He basically questioned God, saying no to him. But Moses had been in the spotlight before. It didn't go well. He's perfectly content to stay in Midian, keeping the sheep. He liked it that way. But God would not accept no for an answer. So God says, I'm going to give you credibility. I'm going to work powerful miracles. I'm going to give you Aaron as a spokesperson. So so he's going to be able to speak for you. But you're the one I want to do this. Moses reluctantly went. But the Jews to this day are so thankful for their deliverer. And Jesus courageously accepted the assignment, and we will be eternally grateful that he did so with courage. Well, here's one more thing I want us to see. The second thing, Jesus was praised by the multitudes, but he still maintained 
his equilibrium. And that takes humility. So much we can learn about Jesus, about dealing with stress. And notice Luke chapter 19, verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, we need to know this was not a spontaneous, impulsive parade that the crowd just gathered and Jesus said, I'm going to take advantage of this. This was a carefully orchestrated, pre-planned event. Everything was according to plan. In fact, I want you to notice several things Jesus did specifically to bring the spotlight on himself. First, he performed the most, spirit, the most spectacular miracle just before the triumphal entry. Just a few days before, he raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember that story? And people were talking about it. Here's a man been dead for four days, and now he is alive. Everybody's talking about Lazarus. Everybody was talking about Jesus. How could this be? Look at John 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So much so, look at the next verse. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This raising Lazarus from the grave... Everybody was talking about it. It put the focus on Jesus, and the religious leaders resented it because the crowds saw it. Nobody could deny it. Lazarus was walking around in their midst. And so they were leaving the religious leaders and going to Jesus. Jesus was the talk of the city. Everybody was buzzing about this. He was the center of debate. Could this be the Messiah? What does all this mean? Well, the second thing Jesus did to put the spotlight on himself he arranged this parade during the Passover week. Huge crowd was gathering. For Jesus to choose this day, this moment, to do this, I want you to think about this. It'd be like us as a church trying to make a demonstration on Mule Day out in the parking lot. When there are thousands of visitors in the city trying to take, take in what, what Columbia has to offer, everybody's going to notice Passover week was a huge Jewish festival. Scholars estimate as many as 2 million people. 2 million people descended into the city. It was packed. So much so that the city couldn't contain them all. They were camping out in tents outside the city. This was the moment, the timing for this event. And it was perfect. Remember how many times Jesus would say, My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. You remember reading that? Well, the time had come. Here's another thing to note. He deliberately fulfilled prophecy, and that just excited the crowd. In Zechariah 9.9, it predicted that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And the Lord made careful plans to make sure that happened. He arranged with a friend in Jerusalem to borrow his coat. He sent his disciples to go in and to fetch it back. and said, if anybody asks, tell them the Lord has need of it. There's the password. They bring it to him, he gets on the animal, and the people place their cloaks on the ground. And when people saw that, they knew this prophecy, and they realized exactly what Jesus was doing. They knew their Lord was openly declaring, yes, he was 
the Messiah. Look at Matthew 21, verse 8. Matthew describes it like this. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And you read how the gospel writers describe this moment. You learn that Jesus accepted the praise. He's not telling them to hush. He's not saying, my time's not yet come. The time had come. He accepts their praise. He accepts their support. And if you recall, early on in his ministry, whenever they would realize that he was the Messiah, hang on to that. Don't tell anybody. You remember that? But no more. Now the time was right. So he doesn't squelch the talk at all. He accepts the praise. He welcomes it because he knows he's their hope. This has to happen. But notice what these crowds, these multitudes, no doubt thousands of people saying, Hosanna, Jesus never loses his equilibrium. He did not become arrogant. Remember, Jesus described himself as meek and lowly in heart. This was not a moment of manipulating crowds for his own gain. There's a sense of humility and authenticity about Jesus, and it continued. That's why the, the common man felt comfortable coming to Jesus, being in his presence, listening to him talk, sitting with him for a meal. That's who he was. And the very symbol of Jesus entering town, riding on a donkey, was the very opposite of a pompous king. A real king in the world's eyes would be riding on an impressive stallion, not a donkey. A real king would enter not with common people surrounding him, putting their cloaks and branches. He would be surrounded by an army, soldiers, or at least guards with impressive weapons. Charles Colson said this, Throughout history, there have been hundreds of kings, monarchs, and presidents, and they've all sent their subjects out to die for them. But there's only been one king who went out to die for his subject that they might live. And that's Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is why there is strength in the name of the Lord. I want to make sure we get this. One of the most dangerous pressures for leaders is when people praise you. Be warned. Be careful. We're watching this with Jesus. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and the Holy Spirit before a fall. An acclaimed leader can become egotistical. The applause of the crowd can cause enormous ego problems. And if you're praised, people are noticing what a good job you did, how you're stepping up, how you're making a difference. If your sales numbers goes up, if your department is excelling, if your boss is praising you, if your influence is expanding, you make sure to keep your balance. Because for every action, there's a reaction. For every compliment, there's a critic. He's in the corner waiting to pounce on you. Some of these who are saying, Hail King! Hosanna! By the end of the week, will be shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! There is something about praise that acts like a drug. And not that different than drug that you don't know how it's going to affect you. Some people can take some like pain relievers after a surgery and they're fine. And the next person, they're addicted. You don't know until it impacts you how you're going to respond. 
Sometimes once we get it, we want more and more and more. And too many people are not able to withstand the pressure of that popularity. But Jesus did. Jesus kept his mind, his heart, and it's proof it can be done. Here's the third thing I want us to see about Jesus. He was assailed by his critics, but he continued his mission. And that takes maturity. So not only did he have praise and popularity, but he also had critics. But he continued his mission. The religious leaders were appalled at all this spectacle when Jesus came into town. Look at Luke 19, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So they're calling on Jesus because they realize they've lost it. They've lost any control, any influence. The crowd's gone over to Jesus. So Jesus, do something about this. They're calling you the Messiah. If this gets out, we're going to have trouble with Rome. Do something. You've got to set them straight. But Jesus refused to cave to his critics. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones would cry out. That's what Bill mentioned in his prayer. It's true. We need to understand, if you step into the spotlight, not everyone will approve. It's going to happen. Presidents, governors, mayors, supervisors, principals, teachers, coaches, elders. No matter the decision, no matter how wise you've been in the past, no matter how loved you've been in the past, you will encounter disapproval. Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. There's always going to be criticism. And no one enjoys being the object of criticism. But when you accept a leadership role of any kind, you must learn to accept it without overreacting. You can be the most conscientious teacher, professional, do a great job, and there's going to be that one parent that thinks you're overbearing or too strict or too whatever. You could, you could be the dedicated doctor making sure every patient gets expert care, and there's going to be that one patient that sues you. You could be the most generous employer trying to do the best to take care of those who's keeping your business going, and there'll always be that someone grumbling about their salary, stabbing you in the back, you may find this hard to believe, but sometimes preachers even get criticized. Don't meet their expectations. You do this too much. You don't do that enough. I recall early in ministry being warned by a seasoned minister about, you better be ready to deal with criticism. And, and he's right. I was reminded of that when I read about a minister teaching young preachers about this. He thought the best way to do this, because sometimes it just comes at you. You know, you've been criticized before, and you weren't expecting it. Boom, there it is. You've got to be ready to be able to respond in an instant. What are you going to say? How are you going to handle that? So we thought the best way to do this with these five ministers would, would be some role-playing. So we had one to be the minister who had just preached the message, and the other four would be like members of the congregation, like coming through the door maybe to, to kind of respond. And so three of them were to say something encouragement. One of them was to kind of give it to him. So they did that, and they were going through, and he didn't know which one it was or when it was going to come, but, he, you know, he had to be ready. You know, when you're criticized, how do you respond? Well, sometimes you need it. Sometimes you're in the wrong, and you need to be criticized. You need to be shown the way of the Lord more perfectly. You need to be helped 
I remember one time somebody pulled me aside because I mispronounced the word. I was grateful. I don't want to do that again. I want to help. Sometimes, though, criticism can be harmful, malicious, mean-spirited. And that can be more challenging. So the guy stood at the door waiting for his buddies to come through. One said something good. Another said something good. And the guy who's supposed to be the critic said, do you know how long you preached today? 45 minutes. Why'd you go that long? You know nobody listens to you for that long. Everybody's going to cut you off. Why don't you stop? The young preacher said, well, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I'll, I'll try to do better next week. But the critic wouldn't let him off the hook. Why do you do that? If you do this again, I'm going to take you to the elders. I'm going to call for your, for your job. And then he walked away. The young preacher said, God bless you, geek. And the guy turned around, what would you say? Because I'll see you next week. See you next week. We can laugh at being criticized or even a story, but it's so hard to keep your head when someone's coming at you like that. An effective leader must learn to rise above the criticism, and that takes maturity. That takes confidence. J. Oswald Sanders, I think, is the one who said this. Maturity is moving from a thin skin and a hard heart to a thick skin and a soft heart. That's Jesus, isn't it? A thick skin. But he had a soft heart for people. That brings me to the last point. Jesus was motivated by love, but he was still realistic about people. And that takes grace. You might say amazing grace. Why did Jesus enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey? He was not motivated by egotism. It wasn't look at me. That's not why he's stepping in the center of the spotlight. He knew what was about to happen. His motivation was to carry out his mission to save people. This is what had been planned from the fall. Look at Luke 19, verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying that, would, that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. J. Vernon McGee says, we probably shouldn't call this the triumphal entry because it was a tearful entry. How strange that the grand marshal of the parade stops and cries. How did the crowd respond to that? Did that surprise them? Were the disciples embarrassed? But Jesus didn't weep because he was about to die. He was moved to tears because he knew the very people that he's looking at are about to suffer greatly. He's able to look ahead to 70 AD when the Romans were going to come in and just obliterate the whole town. Look what he said in verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, I don't think any of us are surprised by his motivation, that he was motivated out of love. But how can you not be astounded by his faithfulness as he goes through this pressure-packed week knowing knowing what was coming, 
that these very people are going to reject him and abuse him and kill him. You know, when someone you love disappoints you, it's hard. And there's an inclination to go one of two extremes. One is you can become cynical and bitter about them. Hey, you're going to treat me that way? So be it. How many social media memes have you seen about just cutting those people out of your life? Have you read that? That's, that's one extreme. The other is you can be unrealistic and naive and close your eyes to what they're really like. How many times have you seen a mother interviewed on the news about her son who just got arrested for murder saying, well, he's really a good boy. He just got involved in the wrong crowd. That was his one mistake. Or that, that naive wife talking about her husband's affairs saying, well, he's a good husband. He just has a weakness in that area. No! Jesus was not naive, nor did he become hard-hearted. His love did not blind him or warp his judgment. He was not bitter or cynical. He assessed man's sin condition accurately, and he looked at Jerusalem, and it broke his heart. And he wept because he knew what it all meant. He ached in his heart for what was going to happen to them. He knew how they were going to respond to him. And yet he went through it. That takes amazing grace. It's getting what you do not deserve. I read about a company that hired a new personnel manager from out of town. The company was about to go bankrupt, so something drastic had to happen. So he was charged with making the drastic steps needed, so he let people go. He did some massive cuts to salaries. He reallocated responsibilities. As the saying goes, there was a lot of blood on the table. And even though everything was done to save the business, he didn't have many friends at work. In fact, no one really liked him. The resentment grew. And then one day, on the factory floor, a man fell over with a heart attack. Nobody knew what to do. They were just in shock. This personnel manager happened to be walking by, got on his knees in his suit on that dirty factory floor, started CPR and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on the man who had the heart attack, waiting for the medics to arrive. It would make a much better story if the heart attack victim had survived, but he didn't. But from that day on, everyone in the factory had a whole new outlook on that personnel manager because they no longer saw him as the outsider who would come in to make their life difficult. They saw him as one of them, somebody who really cared for them and was willing to get on their level even in an attempt to save them. God sent his son not to keep us from having fun, not to make life unpleasant, but to save us, to give us life. He came down to our level, our grime, our filth, our sin, so that we could have hope. And he was successful in saving us, but it cost him his life. Look what Paul wrote, Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is grace. Jesus came in the world to become man, one of us. At the right time, he stepped in the spotlight knowing they would kill him. And that took courage. It took humility for him to accept all the praise and attention and not lose his balance. It took maturity to disregard his endless critics and fulfill his mission in spite of them. It took amazing grace to be willing to love and forgive in spite of rejection. You know, for us, there's also a time where you need to step into the spotlight. Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. And there is no question, once you make a decision for Jesus, there will be more pressure on you. Yes, it's the best life, but there will be more pressure. There's going to be added expectations of of your morality and your ethics, the way you live. There's going to be more responsibilities at church. There's going to be a concern and a love for others, a willingness to serve and to give. All of that is required if you're going to follow Jesus. But it's so much easier to stay in your seat and watch others do it. Much easier to do that. But if you want to walk in God's will, if you want your life to really count for something, there comes a day, a time for decision. To step in the spotlight, it takes courage, it takes humility, it takes maturity, and it takes grace. You may be under a lot of pressure and stress, but Jesus has gone there. And you can do it too. One man said this, it's one thing to sing the national anthem, it's another to join the army. It's one thing to attend worship and tip your hat to God, but he wants to know if you're in his family and make a commitment. So for you today, it may be a time of decision. Maybe for you, your moment is to walk down the aisle and say, I'm ready to be baptized into Jesus. You believe that he is the son of God. You'll confess that faith. Let him make you a new creation. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe for you, it's time for you to say, I want this to be my church home. I'm ready to to be a part of the family, not just a spectator. One who can be depended on and help. Whatever we can do to help you. Would you come as we stand and sing to encourage? Oh, oh.